Chapter Six of Before Adam by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks.com. While the more courageous of the youngsters played in and out of the large-mouthed caves, I early learned that such caves were unoccupied. No one slept in them at night. Only the crevice-mouthed caves were used. The narrower the mouth, the better. This was from fear of the preying animals that made life a burden to us in those days and nights. The first morning after my night's sleep with Lapierre, I learned the advantage of the narrow-mouthed caves. It was just daylight when old Sabretooth the tiger walked into the open space. Two of the folk were already up. They made a rush for it. Whether they were panic-stricken or whether he was too close on their heels for them to attempt to scramble up the bluff to the crevices, I do not know. But at any rate they dashed into the wide mouth cave wherein Lapier and I had played the afternoon before. What happened inside there was no way of telling, but it is fair to conclude that the two folk slipped through the connecting crevice into the other cave. This crevice was too small to allow for the passage of Sabretooth, and he came out the way he had gone in, unsatisfied and hungry. It was evident that his night's hunting had been unsuccessful, and that he had expected to make a meal off of us. He caught sight of the two folk at the other cave mouth and sprang for them. Of course, they darted through the passageway into the first cave. He emerged angrier than ever and snarling. Pandemonium broke loose amongst the rest of us. All up and down the great bluff we crowded the crevices and outside ledges, and we were all chattering and shrieking in a thousand keys, and we were all making faces, snarling faces. This was an instinct with us. We were as angry as Sabretooth, though our anger was allayed with fear. I remember that I shrieked and made faces with the best of them. Not only did they set the example, but I felt the urge from within me to do the same things they were doing. My hair was bristling and I was convulsed with a fierce, unreasoning rage. For some time old Sabretooth continued dashing in and out of first the one cave and then the other but the two folk merely slipped back and forth through the connecting crevice and eluded him. In the meantime the rest of us up the bluff had proceeded to action. Every time he appeared outside we pelted him with rocks. At first we merely dropped them on him, but we soon began to whiz them down with the added force of our muscles. This bombardment drew Sabretooth's attention to us and made him angrier than ever. He abandoned his pursuit of the two folk, and sprang up the bluff towards the rest of us, clawing at the crumbling rock, and snarling as he clawed his upward way. At this awful sight the last one of us sought refuge inside our caves. I know this, because I peeped out and saw the whole bluff side deserted, save for Sabretooth, who had lost his footing and was sliding and falling down. I called out the cry of encouragement, and again the bluff was covered by the screaming horde and the stones were falling faster than ever. Sabretooth was frantic with rage. Time and again he assaulted the bluff. Once he even gained the first crevice entrances before he fell back, but was unable to force his way inside. With each upward rush he made, waves of fear surged over us. At first, at such times, most of us dashed inside. But some remained outside to hammer him with stones, and soon all of us remained outside and kept up the fusillade. Never was so masterly a creature so completely baffled. It hurt his pride terribly thus to be outwitted by the small and tender folk. 
He stood on the ground and looked up at us, snarling, lashing his tail, snapping at the stones that fell near to him. Once I whizzed down a stone, and just at the right moment he looked up. It caught him full on the end of his nose, and he went straight up in the air, all four feet of him, roaring and caterwauling, what of the hurt and surprise. He was beaten, and he knew it. Recovering his dignity, he stalked solemnly out from under the rain of stones. He stopped in the middle of the open space and looked wistfully and hungrily back at us. He hated to forego the meal, and we were just so much meat cornered but inaccessible. This sight of him started us to laughing. We laughed derisively and uproariously, all of us. Now, animals do not like mockery. To be laughed at makes them angry. And in such fashion our laughter affected Sabertooth. He turned with a roar and charged the bluff again. This was what we wanted. The fight had become a game, and we took huge delight in belting him. But this attack did not last long. He quickly recovered his common sense, and besides, our missiles were shrewd to hurt. Vividly do I recollect the vision of one bulging eye of his, swollen almost shut by one of the stones we had thrown, and vividly do I retain the picture of him as he stood on the edge of the forest whither he had finally retreated. He was looking back at us, his writhing lips lifted clear of the very roots of his huge fangs, his hair bristling and his tail lashing. He gave one last snarl and slid from view among the trees. And then such a chattering as went up. We swarmed out of our holes, examining the marks his claws had made on the crumbling rock of the bluff, all of us talking at once. One of the two folk who had been caught in the double cave was part grown, half child and half youth. They had come out proudly from their refuge, and we surrounded them in an admiring crowd. Then the young fellow's mother broke through and fell upon him in a tremendous rage, boxing his ears, pulling his hair, and shrieking like a demon. She was a strapping big woman, very hairy, and the thrashing she gave him was a delight to the whore. We roared with laughter, holding on to one another, or rolling on the ground in our glee. In spite of the reign of fear under which we lived, the folk were always great laughers. We had the sense of humor. Our merriment was gargantuan. It was never restrained. There was nothing halfway about it. When a thing was funny, we were convulsed with the appreciation of it, and the simplest, crudest things were funny to us. Oh, we were great laughers, I can tell you. The way we had treated Sabretooth was the way we treated all animals that invaded the village. We kept our runways and drinking places to ourselves by making life miserable for the animals that trespassed or strayed upon our immediate territory. Even the fiercest hunting animals we so bedeviled that they learned to leave our places alone. We were not fighters like them. We were cunning and cowardly, and it was because of our cunning and cowardice and our inordinate capacity for fear that we survived in that frightfully hostile environment of the younger world. Lopier, I figure, was a year older than I. What his past history was he had no way of telling me, but as I never saw anything of his mother, I believed him to be an orphan. After all, fathers did not count in our horde. Marriage was as yet in a rude state, and couples had a way of quarreling and separating. Modern man, what of his divorce institution, does the same thing legally. But we had no laws. Custom was all we went by and our custom in this particular matter was rather promiscuous. Nevertheless, as this narrative will show later on, we betrayed glimmering adumbrations of the monogamy that was later to give power to 
and make mighty such tribes as embraced it. Furthermore, even at the time I was born, there were several faithful couples that lived in the trees in the neighborhood of my mother. Living in the thick of the horde did not conduce to monogamy. It was for this reason, undoubtedly, that the faithful couples went away and lived by themselves. Through many years these couples stayed together, though when the man or woman died or was eaten, the survivor invariably found a new mate. There was one thing that greatly puzzled me during the first days of my residence in the Horde. There was a nameless and incommunicable fear that rested upon all. At first it appeared to be connected wholly with direction. The Horde feared the Northeast. It lived in perpetual apprehension of that quarter of the compass, and every individual gazed more frequently and with greater alarm in that direction than in any other. When Lopier and I went toward the northeast to eat the stringy-rooted carrots that at that season were at their best, he became unusually timid. He was content to eat the leavings, the big tough carrots, and the little ropey ones, rather than to venture a short distance farther on to where the carrots were as yet untouched. When I so ventured he scolded me and quarreled with me. He gave me to understand that in that direction was some horrible danger but just what the horrible danger was his paucity of language would not permit him to say. Many a good meal I got in this fashion, while he scolded and chattered vainly at me. I could not understand. I kept very alert, but I could see no danger. I calculated always the distance between myself and the nearest tree, and knew that to that haven of refuge I could outfoot the tawny one or old saber-tooth did one or the other suddenly appear. One late afternoon in the village a great uproar arose. The horde was animated with a single emotion, that of fear. The bluffside swarmed with the folk, all gazing and pointing into the northeast. I did not know what it was, but I scrambled all the way up to the safety of my own high little cave before ever I turned around to see. And then across the river, away into the northeast, I saw for the first time the mystery of smoke. It was the biggest animal I had ever seen. I thought it was a monster snake upended, rearing its head high above the trees and swaying back and forth. And yet, somehow, I seemed to gather from the conduct of the folk that the smoke itself was not the danger. They appeared to fear it as the toking of something else. What this something else was, I was unable to guess. Nor could they tell me. Yet, I was soon to know and I was to know it as a thing more terrible than the tawny one, than old saber-tooth, than the snakes themselves, than which it seemed there could be no things more terrible. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 Broken Tooth was another youngster who lived by himself. His mother lived in the caves, but two more children had come after him, and he had been thrust out to shift for himself. We had witnessed the performance during the several preceding days, and it had given us no little glee. Broken Tooth did not want to go, and every time his mother left the cave he sneaked back into it. When she returned and found him there her rages were delightful. Half the horde made a practice of watching for these moments. First from within the cave would come her scolding and shrieking. Then we could hear sounds of the thrashing and the yelling of Broken Tooth. About this time the two younger children joined in and finally, like the eruption of a miniature volcano, Broken Tooth would come flying out. At the end of several days his leaving home was accomplished. He wailed his grief unheeded from the center of the open space for at least half an hour, 
and then came to live with Lop Ear and me. Our cave was small, but with squeezing there was room for three. I have no recollection of Broken Tooth spending more than one night with us, so the accident must have happened right away. It came in the middle of the day. In the morning we had eaten our fill of the carrots, and then, made heedless by play, we had ventured onto the big trees just beyond. I cannot understand how Lop Ear got over his habitual caution, but it must have been the play. We were having a great time playing tree tag, and such tag. We leaped ten or fifteen foot gaps as a matter of course, and a twenty or twenty-five foot deliberate drop clear down to the ground was nothing to us. In fact, I am almost afraid to say the great distances we dropped. As we grew older and heavier, we found we had to be more cautious in dropping. But at that age our bodies were all strings and springs, and we could do anything. Broken Tooth displayed remarkable agility in the game. He was it less frequently than any of us, and in the course of the game he discovered one difficult slip that neither Lapier nor I was able to accomplish. To be truthful, we were afraid to attempt it. When we were it, Broken Tooth always ran out to the end of a lofty branch in a certain tree. From the end of the branch to the ground it must have been seventy feet, and nothing intervened to break a fall. But about twenty feet lower down, and fully fifteen feet out from the perpendicular, was the thick branch of another tree. As we ran out the limb, Broken Tooth facing us would begin teetering. This naturally impeded our progress. But there was more in the teetering than that. He teetered with his back to the jump he was to make. Just as we nearly reached him, he would let go. The teetering branch was like a springboard. It threw him far out backward as he fell, and as he fell he turned around sideways in the air so as to face the other branch into which he was falling. This branch bent far down under the impact, and sometimes there was an ominous crackling, but it never broke, and out of the leaves was always to be seen the face of Broken Tooth grinning triumphantly up at us. I was it the last time Broken Tooth tried this. He had gained the end of the branch and begun his teetering, and I was creeping out after him, when suddenly there came a low warning cry from Lapier. I looked down and saw him in the main fork of the tree, crouching close against the trunk. Instinctively I crouched down upon the thick limb. Broken Tooth stopped teetering, but the branch would not stop and his body continued bobbing up and down with the rustling leaves. I heard the crackle of a dry twig, and looking down saw my first fireman. He was creeping steadily along on the ground and peering up into the tree. At first I thought he was a wild animal, because he wore around his waist and over his shoulders a ragged piece of bearskin. And then I saw his hands and feet, and more clearly his features. He was very much like my kind, except that he was less hairy and that his feet were less like hands than ours. In fact, he and his people, as I was later to know, were far less hairy than we, though we in turn were equally less hairy than the tree people. It came to me instantly as I looked at him. This was the terror of the Northeast, of which the mystery of smoke was a token. Yet I was puzzled. Certainly he was nothing of which to be afraid. Red Eye or any of our strong men would have been more than a match for him. He was old, too, wizened with age, and the hair on his face was gray. Also, he limped badly with one leg. There was no doubt at all that we could outrun him and outclimb him. He could never catch us, that was certain. But he carried something in his hand that I had never seen before. 
It was a bow and arrow. But at that time a bow and arrow had no meaning for me. How was I to know that death lurked in that bent piece of wood? But Lopier knew. He had evidently seen the fire people before, and knew something of their ways. The fireman peeped up at him and circled around the tree. And around the main trunk above the fork Lopier circled too, keeping always the trunk between himself and the fireman. The latter abruptly reversed his circling. Lopier caught unawares, also hastily reversed, but did not win the protection of the trunk until after the fireman had twanged the bow. I saw the arrow leap up, miss Lopier, glance against the limb, and fall back to the ground. I danced up and down on my lofty perch with delight. It was a game. The fireman was throwing things at Lopier as we sometimes threw things at one another. The game continued a little longer, but Lopier did not expose himself a second time. Then the fireman gave it up. I leaned far out over my horizontal limb and chattered down at him. I wanted to play. I wanted to have him try to hit me with the thing. He saw me but ignored me, turning his attention to Broken Tooth, who was still teetering slightly and involuntarily on the end of his branch. The first arrow leaped upward. Broken Tooth yelled with fright and pain. It had reached its mark. This put a new complexion on the matter. I no longer cared to play, but crouched tremblingly close to my limb. A second arrow and a third soared up, missing Broken Tooth, rustling the leaves as they passed through, arching in their flight and returning to earth. The fireman stretched his bow again. He shifted his position, walked away several steps, then shifted it a second time. The bowstring twanged, the arrow leaped upward, and Broken Tooth, uttering a terrible scream, fell off the branch. I saw him as he went down, turning over and over, all arms and legs it seemed, the shaft of the arrow projecting from his chest and appearing and disappearing with each revolution of his body. Sheer down, screaming, seventy feet he fell, smashing to the earth with an audible thud and crunch, his body rebounding slightly and settling down again. Still he lived, for he moved and squirmed, clawing with his hands and feet. I remember the fireman running forward with a stone and hammering him on the head, and then I remember no more. Also during my childhood, at this stage of the dream, did I wake up screaming with fright, to find often my mother or nurse anxious and startled by my bedside, passing soothing hands through my hair and telling me that they were there and that there was nothing to fear. My next dream, in the order of succession, begins always with the flight of Lopier and myself through the forest. The fireman and Broken Tooth and the tree of the tragedy are gone. Lopier and I, in a cautious panic, are fleeing through the trees. In my right leg is a burning pain, and from the flesh protruding head and shaft from either side is an arrow of the fireman. Not only did the pull and strain of it pain me severely, but it bothered my movements and made it impossible for me to keep up with Lopier. At last I gave up crouching in the secure fork of a tree. Lopier went right on. I called to him most plaintively, I remember, and he stopped and looked back. Then he returned to me, climbing into the fork and examining the arrow. He tried to pull it out, but one way the flesh resisted the barbed lead, and the other way it resisted the feathered shaft. Also it hurt grievously, and I stopped him. For some time we crouched there, Lopier nervous and anxious to be gone, perpetually and apprehensively peering this way and that, and myself whimpering softly and sobbing. Lopier was plainly in a funk. 
and yet his conduct in remaining by me in spite of his fear i take as a foreshadowing of the altruism and comradeship that have helped make man the mightiest of the animals once again lop ear tried to drag the arrow through the flesh and i angrily stopped him then he bent down and began gnawing the shaft of the arrow with his teeth as he did so he held the arrow firmly in both hands so that it would not play about in the wound and at the same time i held on to him i often meditate upon this scene the two of us half-grown cubs in the childhood of the race and the one mastering his fear beating down his selfish impulse of flight in order to stand by and succor the other and there rises up before me all that there was there foreshadowed and i see visions of damon and pythias of life-saving crews and red cross nurses of martyrs and leaders of forlorn hopes of father damien and of the christ himself and of all the men of earth mighty of stature whose strength may trace back to the elemental loins of lop-ear and big-tooth and other dim denizens of the younger world when lop-ear had chewed off the head of the arrow the shaft was withdrawn easily enough i started to go on but this time it was he that stopped me my leg was bleeding profusely some of the smaller veins had doubtless been ruptured running out to the end of a branch lop-ear gathered a handful of green leaves these he stuffed into the wound they accomplished the purpose for the bleeding soon stopped then we went on together back to the safety of the caves end of chapter seven chapter eight well do i remember that first winter after i had left home i have long dreams of sitting shivering in the cold lop-ear and i sit close together with our arms and legs about each other blue-faced with chattering teeth it got particularly crisp along toward morning in those chill early hours we slept little huddling together in numb misery and waiting for the sunrise in order to get warm when we went outside there was a crackle of frost underfoot one morning we discovered ice on the surface of the quiet water in the eddy where was the drinking place and there was a great how do you do about it old marrowbone was the oldest member of the horde and he had never seen anything like it before i remember the worried plaintive look that came into his eyes as he examined the ice this plaintive look always came into our eyes when we did not understand a thing or when we felt the prod of some vague and inexpressible desire red eye too when he investigated the ice looked bleak and plaintive and stared across the river into the northeast as though in some way he connected the fire-people with this latest happening. But we found ice only on that one morning, and that was the coldest winter we experienced. I have no memory of other winters when it was so cold. I have often thought that the cold winter was a forerunner of the countless cold winters to come, as the ice-sheet from farther north crept down over the face of the land. But we never saw that ice-sheet many generations must have passed before the descendants of the horde migrated south or remained and adapted themselves to the changed conditions life was hit or miss and happy-go-lucky with us little was ever planned and less was executed we ate when we were hungry drank when we were thirsty avoided our carnivorous enemies took shelter in the caves at night and for the rest just sort of played along through life we were very curious easily amused and full of tricks and pranks there was no seriousness about us except when we were in danger or were angry in which cases the one was quickly forgotten and the other as quickly got over we were inconsecutive illogical and inconsequential 
we had no steadfastness of purpose, and it was here that the fire people were ahead of us. They possessed all these things of which we possessed so little. Occasionally, however, especially in the realm of the emotions, we were capable of long-cherished purpose. The faithfulness of the monogamic couples I have referred to may be explained as a matter of habit, but my long desire for the swift one cannot be so explained any more than can be explained the undying enmity between me and Red Eye. But it was our inconsequentiality and stupidity that especially distresses me when I look back upon that life in the long ago. Once I found a broken gourd which happened to lie right side up and which had been filled with the rain. The water was sweet and I drank it. I even took the gourd down to the stream and filled it with more water, some of which I drank and some of which I poured over Lapier. And then I threw the gourd away. It never entered my head to fill the gourd with water and carry it into my cave. Yet often I was thirsty at night, especially after eating wild onions and watercress and no one ever dared leave the caves at night for a drink. Another time I found a dry gourd inside of which the seeds rattled. I had fun with it for a little while, but it was a plaything, nothing more. And yet it was not long after this that the using of gourds for storing water became the general practice of the horde. But I was not the inventor. The honor was due to old Marrowbone, and it is fair to assume that it was the necessity of his great age that brought about the innovation. At any rate, the first member of the horde to use gourds was Marrowbone. He kept a supply of drinking water in his cave, which cave belonged to his son, the hairless one, who permitted him to occupy a corner of it. We used to see Marrowbone filling his gourd at the drinking place and carrying it carefully up to his cave. Imitation was strong in the folk, and first one and then another and another procured a gourd and used it in similar fashion until it was a general practice with all of us so to store water. Sometimes old Marrowbone had six bells and was unable to leave the cave. Then it was that the hairless one filled the gourd for him. A little later the hairless one deputed the task to Longlip, his son, and after that, even when Marrowbone was well again, Longlip continued carrying water for him. By and by, except on unusual occasions, the men never carried any water at all, leaving the task to the women and larger children. Lapier and I were independent. We carried water only for ourselves, and we often mocked the young water carriers when they were called away from play to fill the gourds. Progress was slow with us. We played through life, even the adults, much in the same way that children play, and we played as none of the other animals played. What little we learned was usually in the course of play and was due to our curiosity and keenness of appreciation. For that matter, the one big invention of the horde during the time I lived with it was the use of gourds. At first we stored only water in the gourds, in imitation of old marrowbone. But one day some one of the women, I do not know which one, filled the gourd with blackberries and carried it to her cave. In no time all the women were carrying berries and nuts and roots in the gourds. This idea, once started, had to go on. Another evolution of the carrying receptacle was due to women. Without doubt, some woman's gourd was too small, or else she had forgotten her gourd. But be that as it may, she bent two great leaves together, pinning the seams with twigs, and carried home a bigger quantity of berries than could have been contained in the largest gourd. 
So far we got, and no farther, in the transportation of supplies during the years I lived with the folk. It never entered anybody's head to weave a basket out of willow-wise. Sometimes the men and women tied tough vines about the bundles of ferns and branches that they carried to the caves to sleep upon. Possibly in ten or twenty generations we might have worked up to the weaving of baskets. And of this one thing is sure. If once we wove withes into baskets, the next and inevitable step would have been in the weaving of cloth. Clothes would have followed, and with covering our nakedness would have come modesty. Thus was momentum gained in the younger world. But we were without this momentum. We were just getting started, and we could not go far in a single generation. We were without weapons, without fire, and in the raw beginnings of speech. The device of writing lay so far in the future that I am appalled when I think of it. Even I was once on the verge of a great discovery. To show you how fortuitous was development in those days, let me state that had it not been for the gluttony of Lopier, I might have brought about the domestication of the dog. And this was something that the fire people who lived to the northeast had not yet achieved. They were without dogs, for I knew this from observation. But let me tell you how Lopier's gluttony possibly set back our social development many generations. Well to the west of our caves was a great swamp, but to the south lay a stretch of low rocky hills. These were little frequented for two reasons. First of all, there was no food there of the kind we ate, and next those rocky hills were filled with the lairs of carnivorous beasts. But Lopier and I strayed over to the hills one day. We would have not strayed had we not been teasing a tiger. Please do not laugh, it was old Sabretooth himself. We were perfectly safe. We chanced upon him in the forest early in the morning, and from the safety of the branches overhead we chattered down at him our dislike and hatred. And from branch to branch and from tree to tree we followed overhead, making an infernal row and warning all the forest dwellers that old Sabretooth was coming. We spoiled his hunting for him anyway and we made him good and angry. He snarled at us and lashed his tail, and sometimes he paused and stared up at us quietly for a long time, as if debating in his mind some way by which he could get hold of us. But we only laughed and pelted him with twigs and the ends of branches. This tiger-baiting was common sport among the folk. Sometimes half the horde would follow from overhead a tiger or lion that had ventured out in the daytime. It was our revenge, for more than one member of the horde caught unexpectedly had gone the way of the tiger's belly or the lion's. Also, by such ordeals of helplessness and shame, we taught the hunting animals to some extent to keep out of our territory. And then it was funny. It was a great game. And so Lopier and I had chased Sabretooth across three miles of forest. Toward the last he put his tail between his legs and fled from our jibing like a beaten cur. We did our best to keep up with him, but when we reached the edge of the forest he was no more than a streak in the distance. I don't know what prompted us, unless it was curiosity, but after playing around a while Lopier and I ventured across the open ground to the edge of the rocky hills. We did not go far. Possibly at no time were we more than a hundred yards from the trees. Coming around a sharp corner of rock, we went very carefully, because we did not know what we might encounter. We came upon three puppies playing in the sun. They did not see us, and we watched them for some time. They were wild dogs. 
in the rock wall was a horizontal fissure evidently the lair where their mother had left them and where they should have remained had they been obedient but the growing life that in lopier and me had impelled us to venture away from the forest had driven the puppies out of the cave to frolic i know how their mother would have punished them had she caught them but it was lopier and i who caught them he looked at me and then we made a dash for it the puppies knew no place to run except into the lair and we headed them off one rushed between my legs i squatted and grabbed him he sank his sharp little teeth into my arm and i dropped him in the suddenness of the hurt and surprised the next moment he had scurried inside lop-ear struggling with a second puppy scowled at me and intimated by a variety of sounds the different kinds of a fool and a bungler that i was this made me ashamed and spurred me to valor i grabbed the remaining puppy by the tail he got his teeth into me once and then i got him by the nape of the neck lop-ear and i sat down and held the puppies up and looked at them and laughed they were snarling and yelping and crying lop-ear started suddenly he thought he had heard something we looked at each other in fear, realizing the danger of our position. The thing that made animals raging demons was tampering with their young, and these puppies that made such a racket belonged to the wild dogs. Well, we knew them, running in packs, the terror of the grass-eating animals. We had watched them following the herds of cattle and bison, and dragging down the calves, the aged, and the sick. We had been chased by them ourselves more than once. I had seen one of the folk, a woman, run down by them and caught just as she reached the shelter of the woods. Had she not been tired out by the run, she might have made it into a tree. She tried and slipped and fell back. They made short work of her. We did not stare at each other longer than a moment. Keeping tight hold of our prizes, we ran for the woods. Once in the security of a tall tree, we held up the puppies and laughed again. You see, we had to have our laugh out, no matter what happened and then began one of the hardest tasks I ever attempted. We started to carry the puppies to our cave. Instead of using our hands for climbing, most of the time they were occupied with holding our squirming captives. Once we tried to walk on the ground, but were treed by a miserable hyena who followed along underneath. He was a wise hyena. Lopier got an idea. He remembered how we tied up bundles of leaves to carry home for beds breaking off some tough vines he tied his puppy's legs together and then with another piece of vine passed around his neck slung the puppy on his back this left him with hands and feet free to climb he was jubilant and did not wait for me to finish tying my puppy's legs but started on there was one difficulty however the puppy wouldn't stay slung on lopier's back it swung around to the side and then on in front its teeth were not tied and the next thing it did was to sink its teeth into Lopier's soft and unprotected stomach. He let out a scream, nearly fell, and clutched a branch violently with both hands to save himself. The vine around his neck broke, and the puppy, its four legs still tied, dropped to the ground. The hyena proceeded to dine. Lopier was disgusted and angry. He abused the hyena and then went off alone through the trees. I had no reason that I knew for wanting to carry the puppy to the cave, except that I wanted to, and I stayed by my task. I made the work a great deal easier by elaborating on Lopier's idea. Not only did I tie the puppy's legs, but I thrust a stick through his jaws and tied them together securely. At last I got the puppy home. 
I imagine I had more pertinacity than the average folk, or else I should not have succeeded. They laughed at me when they saw me lugging the puppy up to my high little cave, but I did not mind. Success crowned my efforts, and there was a puppy. He was a plaything such as none of the folk possessed. He learned rapidly. When I played with him and he bit me, I boxed his ears, and then he did not try again to bite for a long time. I was quite taken up with him. He was something new, and it was a characteristic of the folk to like new things. When I saw that he refused fruits and vegetables, I caught birds for him and squirrels and young rabbits. We folks were meat-eaters as well as vegetarians, and we were adept at catching small game. The puppy ate the meat and thrived. As well as I can estimate, I must have had him over a week. And then, coming back to the cave one day with a nestful of young hatched pheasants, I found Lopier had killed the puppy and was just beginning to eat him. I sprang for Lopier, the cave was small, and we went at it tooth and nail. And thus, in a fight, ended one of the earliest attempts to domesticate the dog. We pulled hair out in handfuls and scratched and bit and gouged. Then we sulked and made up. After that, we ate the puppy. Raw? Yes, we had not yet discovered fire. Our evolution into cooking animals lay in the tight-rolled scroll of the future. End of chapter 8 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's Audiobooks.com